like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. I came home one day and he was sitting on the couch shaking his head. I saw a search warrant I noticed that our front door was kicked in. The police had been there. And on the search warrant, it said sexual assault in student. And we only had about, it seemed 20 minutes before the police showed up again to arrest him. And I confronted him, is this true? I just couldn't believe it. I just was pacing back and forth because your reality is just shaken at that moment. You don't really believe what's happening. Imagine coming home to your happy marriage, to a person you love dearly, to find a search warrant on the door. And then, shortly thereafter, the arrest of your spouse in this happy marriage for sexual assault of a minor, one of his students, no less. 
Imagine that you didn't see a single red flag, that your happy marriage vanished in one brief moment. Imagine that your husband didn't cheat on you with just one person, but nearly 75. Betrayal is a standard part of every narcissistic relationship, and not all betrayal is created the same. Jennifer Faison's story of betrayal has been captured in the hit podcast, Betrayal. This episode of Navigating Narcissism uses the framework of narcissism to further unpack Jen's story. While the story of betrayal is traumatic and painful, Jen's story is a reminder that not all betrayal stories look the same, and also a chance to explore how a person starts to put her life together after such a profound betrayal. Today, I'm going to talk with Jennifer Faison and with Andrea Gunning, the producer of Betrayal, to learn more about this story. First of all, welcome, Jen and Andrea. You're here fresh from the podcast Betrayal, which to everyone listening to this podcast, you must listen to this episode, but then go listen to Betrayal if you haven't already. If you have, you know this is going to be an amazing conversation because you know why I want to talk to Jen and Andrea. This is such an interesting episode for me on navigating narcissism because I've had the opportunity to listen to Betrayal and listen to this deep dive on your story and read anything I could find about it. But I don't want to redo Betrayal. You've done a beautiful job of telling the story. We'll orient people to the story. But on this podcast, I want to orient to using this different lens of, of narcissistic relationships, which many people, I'm sure, heard. It's almost a shift in the lens from what you already did. So if we can just orient readers to start, if you could just sort of tell us the story of how you and Andrea came together and this podcast, Betrayal, came out? Well, because I have a producer background, I, as tragic as the story is of what happened to me, I knew that it would be a compelling story to share with so many different layers. And I thought it would be a way to let other people know that they're not alone. You know, when you go through something like this, you you just feel by yourself and you want to connect to other people. I learned about some amazing podcasts that Andrea had already produced and, and reached out to them. It was just the right fit from the very, very beginning. And from your side, Andrea, because this happened, this story happened to Jen. You've come in from a different place. What was it like for you to be the storyteller of Jen's very, very real trauma and pain? I felt like it was extremely important to handle her story with care Mm -hmm. because when I first met Jen, she was barely a year outside of everything that had happened outside of her husband being arrested. When I had my first phone call with Jen, the thing that struck me the most was I felt this fear of this idea of you could be living with this stranger beside you. Mm -hmm. I could hear the pain in her voice and kind of met her at a time where her life had essentially crumbled and she was just looking to express her story in any way so that she could share what she went through with the world. So it was important to me to honor that and handle it with care, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. really get it out there so people could 
hear it. So, I mean, you're already letting us know this is not our typical narcissism story of two people, one person feels gaslighted and they kind of dislike each other. This was very different. Having listened to Betrayal and anyone listening to today's podcast, please go listen to Betrayal after this if you haven't to really get the depth of Jen's story because we won't be able to do it full credit here because it's a multi-episode podcast. This is a story of, like you said, everything was great. And then it literally went off a cliff. This was not gradual. That's what's so unique about this. Can you give us almost a brief version of how the two of you met and how your your relationship took flight? Spence and I met in college, and mm-hmm. we had this amazing relationship. He was my college sweetheart. There was nothing wrong with it. We broke up, though, and and went our separate ways, but Mm -hmm. always not in a negative way. We didn't have any animosity toward one another. And then the fairy tale happened. I was living in Los Angeles. He was in Atlanta. He reached out to me. We both happened to be in New York City at the same time. We reconnected on a wintry night in Bryant Park, and that was it. We just knew we were meant to be. It was... I believe in soulmates, and I really believed he was mine. And I believed that he thought I was his as well. Mm -hmm. So we were married a year later. I moved to Georgia, and everything was great. I really had a wonderful marriage and didn't know the other side to him, the dark side, which I found out seven years into the relationship when he was arrested. You were married six years, so a year of dating and then or a year of a relationship and then six years married. Yes. Okay. Yes. A year is not a short period of time to get to know someone. That's actually not an unusual length of time to get to know someone, get engaged, get married. So it's not like this was rushed and you already knew him. So this was, you know, sort of picking up with somebody already knowing some of their backstory and their background. Yes. My family knew him. Everybody trusted him. Like, he was just the last person that you wouldn't think you could trust. What was that marriage like? It was wonderful. Mm. We live in this tiny town. We opened a wine bar together. He came home every night saying, hi, wife. Just always excited. He left me a note every single morning next to the coffee pot. He was always checking in. It was a really beautiful relationship. Amazing and unlike any story we have heard on Navigating Narcissism, which is why I, I mean, everyone, I dropped my phone as I listened to her podcast. That is how compelling. So, all right, you meet, you get engaged and you get married. Six years, happy, notes. What happened? I came home one day and he was sitting on the couch shaking his head. I saw a search warrant I noticed that our front door was kicked in. The police had been there. And on the search warrant, it said sexual assault and student. And we only had about, it seemed 20 minutes before the police showed up again to arrest him. And I confronted him, is this true? I just couldn't believe it. I just was pacing back and forth because your reality is just shaken at that moment. You don't really believe what's happening. And he said, yes, it's true. He, of course, lied, though, said it 
only happened three times. Come to find out, it was over a two, two and a half year period. And then the police came and arrested him. And honestly, I haven't seen him since. He went to prison for four years. First of all, we talk about this word betrayal, and it speaks to what a continuum this word is on, right? I think a lot of people use the word betrayal of, oh, you chose to go to your sister's birthday party instead of dinner with me. I feel betrayed. Oh, okay. Now there's there's small B betrayal and there's big B betrayal. And this is all caps betrayal. What the search warrant and the arrest was for, it wasn't embezzling money from the school he worked at. It wasn't that. It was this, this thing that not only was a betrayal that he had this double life, but it was a betrayal of your relationship, of the intimacy you had in the relationship. So that is almost a seismic event no one could get their head around. But this is one of the things that struck me as I listened to your podcast. In your podcast, as you told the story, I did not hear a single red flag. I was listening. Would you agree with that? Am I missing something? Were there red flags? No, absolutely not. And I mean, mm. I've gone back in my head and tried I'm sure. to find some little tiny piece that I, I might mm -hmm. have missed. And I just, I honestly did not see it. And that was such a huge part of yeah. our project was to emphasize that point. And so much of my dedication to Jen was to, I mean, we first met, she was like, I didn't see anything. And I'm so afraid that no one's going to believe me. And I'm so afraid that people are going to judge the fact that I didn't see anything as if there were things to be seen. And it was our one of our driving goals and our purpose mm -hmm. was to really land at that place where there were no red flags and she did not know. And that happens often. It really does. And this to me, Jen, Andrea, I know that one of the drivers for you making this podcast was to help other people. I have to say one of the things you're helping people most with is showing a story without red flags. Because there's something that almost becomes caricatured. Oh, there's always red flags, and it's you didn't see them, and that's because you have legacy issues, and now you see them, and everyone has red flags. But there aren't always red flags. And I think this is so important to lifting blame for survivors who will often say, what did I miss? More than they blame themselves, I must be foolish. And I'll say, listen, unless you're holding back from me, as you shrink, I'm telling you, there were no red flags. And by you sharing your story in this way, I think that's actually one of the most profound parts of the story, was that there were no red flags. And there are a lot of survivors out there that literally it's no red flags, no red flags, and then the whole thing goes off the cliff. And that's why I was so interested in speaking with you about this, because talking about narcissism, I didn't see that mm. in Spence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe he was a covert narcissist, but on the outside, my family, my friends, our community just all thought he was this wonderful man that would do anything for you. One of the things I wanted to ask you today, so you're leading me to that question, was, so I listened to the podcast, early episodes, no red flags, then I literally felt it in my chest when you said the scene, came home, search warrant, arrest, what it was for. If I felt the air sucked out of my lungs, I can't imagine what your experience was, and even what people have had similar, not exactly the same, but other betrayal experiences will feel it too. But as the episodes went on and we saw the scope and scale of what he had done, the lies, the number of betrayals, even after the call you have with him when he's in jail, all of which I'd like to touch base on, what I never heard once 
was the word narcissism. And I was waiting. I'm like, okay, they're going to get to it now. All right, they're going to talk about some of the words. And I'm like, huh. So I get before the arrest. What surprised me was never hearing that frame used afterwards. Can you shed some light on that? Dre, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think it was really important for us to focus on the victim's journey Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and spend less time diagnosing him and what he was all about Mm -hmm. and more about the impact and the different experiences they had with the Spencer they interacted with because the Spencer that Jen interacted with was very different than the sexual assault victim than his band and Air National Guard bandmate. Every person dealt with a different version of him. And I do think that there are seeds of narcissism driving all of those interactions. But it was so important for us to just spend time Mm -hmm. and really experience and unpack. Because Jen's journey was trying to figure out who is this man that I married Mm -hmm. and really at face value is really meeting with people who knew the different sides of him. And that was really the goal for her is to say, I just need to see all the many faces, right? Mm -hmm. I need to see the different portraits and then really get to the bottom of how and just that reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that was more important to Mm -hmm. us. But a lot of what we wanted to showcase and really dig into was grooming. I haven't heard a lot done on grooming, and we felt like we really needed to spend Mm -hmm. time with that, and that's where we focused. We will be right back with this conversation with Jen and Andrea. There's an old saying, I'm going to get it wrong, but I use it a lot. It's an old African proverb. The tale of the hunt is always told by the hunter and never the lion. Yeah. And I think in this case, you're the lion. It took me a minute when I first read that proverb. I'm like, wait, isn't a lion fierce? But no, the lion is being stalked by the hunter. And we always hear the hunter's point of view. So I really, really resonate with what you're saying is how do we tell survivor stories by keeping the lens on the survivor? And so I respect that and I understand that. And I'm curious because goodness knows there's been so much, you know, buzz and people talking about the podcast, after you put it out there and people were commenting on it, did you get that question? Were people saying, well, Spencer, a narcissist, and Spencer sounds like a narcissist? Was it ever coming up, or were people so focused on the survivor experience? I feel like he is so many other things before he's the narcissist. Mm, Interesting. I can't diagnose him, obviously. There's some sociopathic tendencies there, or there's sex addiction, and there's all this stuff. I think now reading his correspondence with some of the other women and how he spoke with them and treated them, I think that's where I see the narcissism in him come out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't see it in our Mm -hmm. lives. He just wasn't like that. He was just very caring and kind. And like I said, would just, you know, give you the shirt Mm -hmm. off his back. Mm -hmm. So it was in those other correspondence, though, that I did see that. That doesn't surprise me at all. And Andrea, you said something so important where you said, we were trying to unpack the many portraits. I love how you said that because that's a struggle many survivors have. Now, what happens in the sort of the more typical narcissistic relationship situation is a person is dealing with a terrible relationship for quite a long time, and then there may even be a ramp up in the betrayal, right? There's an extramarital affair or financial abuse, words that can't be unsaid, that kind of thing. But it was already a bad scene, so the person's like, okay, now I'm done, right? So there was a takeoff ramp. There was a there was an incline to that point where people aren't shocked, they're sad, but they're not shocked. 
right? Right. And that idea of the many portraits, because we always try to simplify it as to the good and the bad, the charming, charismatic versus the invalidating, gaslighting, manipulative, right? What you're saying, and I think it's so on point, is that it's not as simple as good, bad. It's actually these literally different experiences that all these people have of this person. And I think there's a richness you're bringing to this conversation about when we try to simply say, well, there's a personality style and some days are good and some days are bad. But actually, yeah, that's true. But on top of that, many, many other people are having very different experiences. And when you glue all those pieces together like a collage, then you have the full representation of this person who is probably quite unlike anything or anyone you actually believed you were in a seven-year relationship with. One of my hypotheses is that Spencer was getting so much validation in so many other places, the students, other women, people he was doing other creative endeavors with, that... Unlike many narcissistic people who may not have that many tubs of narcissistic supply, narcissists who don't get supply get really tense and snappy and reactive and kind of mean. But if there's always validation coming, it's almost like their tummy is always full. Their psyche is always full. So in a primary relationship like a marriage, they can actually bring their A-game because they're not looking to the marriage as the sole source of supply. They have so diversified their sources of supply that one is left with a really sweet person at home because they're getting it so many other places. And this is something we'll often see is that when a person's in a relationship where there's an infidelity, one of the things they'll say is, what through me is my partner actually started becoming really nice. And I wanted to think it's because the relationship was going better. It's actually because now I recognize they were in love. It just was they were falling in love with someone else that wasn't me and all the positive emotion that came from that. And so I think that's an interesting way to view this because I think he, he was literally the most diversified portfolio of validation I think I've ever heard of in a narcissistic kind of a personality in my life. That makes so much sense. Absolutely. He could be one way, the way that he wanted the world to see him with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I kind of provided that perfect life yes. scenario mm-hmm. and then go off, be that other side of him that was a big part of him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in secret. And I think that you also laid it out. I mean, you're a formidable woman, Jen. I've read your background, your work in the entertainment industry. You're amazing. And so you're this amazing, beautiful woman who's so accomplished that he married and made this beautiful home with. That's its own form of validation above and beyond you. This idea that I have this rock star wife who's gorgeous and is in, you know, we have this great house together, this great life, that becomes a source of validation too. It doesn't feel good to be thought of that way, but it was a really important pillar in sort of the temple of Spence, as it were. My session with Jen and Andrea will continue after this break. So we've gone over the cliff. Search warrant, arrest, he's gone. And now you're left in this wreckage. And the original search warrant and arrest warrant were around sexual contact with a student. Okay, can you unpack what you learned about Spencer's not just double life? It was like a quadruple or a quintuple life. You know, what did you learn? Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, first of all, he is escorted out of the house with leaving me thinking he's had this affair with a student. And it was just three times. And honestly, I think at that point, I didn't really 
even grasp the seriousness of it or how this student, this young person was manipulated by him. Come to find out two days later, I get into his email and I'm seeing picture after picture after picture of all these different women. And I get into his email and discover, I don't know, probably 75 different women that he was corresponding with. He was having two, three-year-long relationships with several different people at the same Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not only just the student, but then so many adult women. I'm going to be a shrink for a minute. Can you tell me, Jen, what did it feel like as a woman to read all these emails, to see this stuff on the screen? You know, one was just how hurt I was. I felt like I had an elephant standing on my chest. There there was that hurt that I felt from mm-hmm. the betrayal because mm-hmm. he knew how important marriage was to me. We talked about it all the time. We were legal together. We were in it for the long haul forever. And then it was finding out, reading the correspondence with these other women, that just made me sick because the way he spoke to them, the language he used, talking about choking someone or it was just disgusting. So there was that betrayal and that heartache I felt, but then there was just this shock and awe of, living with someone I just didn't even know. Right, right. And never had heard that language from or anything. I guess I'm asking that even as a woman. Like, how did you get through your days? I am feeling your story. I'm thinking, I wouldn't know if day was night. I wouldn't know how to sleep. I'd be afraid to wake up. My appetite would be shot. I would lose 100 pounds. How did you get through your days? I told myself very early on, just take every moment with baby steps. If you can just literally put one foot in front of the other and make it to the end of the day, you know, you can check that off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I had a lot of support around me. I have an amazing community. My parents came to stay with me, so that helped. But then that kind of died away a little bit, and I was left on my own. And I got a therapist because I knew I I couldn't do this by myself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I literally just kept telling myself, baby steps, Mm -hmm. just try to make it through today. Just try to make it through today. And that's how you got through, just one step. I mean, that's an extraordinary approach. In some ways, it's exactly what somebody, a mental health practitioner, would tell somebody. But many people say, I can't do this. And you did it. And I think that's important for survivors to hear that that one step at a time, even if it's taking life five seconds at a time, actually, actually matters. In this period of time when you're unearthing all these women, I know, obviously, the case that resulted in the arrest was with a minor. Were these women, these 75 women, were they minors? Were they adults? What was that? Was it mixed? The ones that I found were all adults, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, fortunately. mm -hmm. Some were younger in their 20s. Some were, you know, 50. It, It was a wide range. He did not have a specific type at all. As I went through this, it was the student that was the hardest pill to swallow because he just manipulated her and lied to her like he did all the other women. This was her teacher. This Mm -hmm. is somebody that she's supposed to look up to. That was the most devastating Mm -hmm. thing. It's Mm -hmm. one thing to do it to an adult, but to do it to a child was just 
heart-wrenching. Now, in all of this time, you don't have contact with Spence. I stayed in touch with him for until he was convicted. So oh. he was arrested June 2018, convicted January okay. 2019. I had made a promise to him before he was arrested that I would stick by him. Not in a supportive way, but I just... I don't know why I said that at the moment. I think it was, I'm the wife. I'm supposed to stick by him. And so I did stay in communication with him through letters and phone calls Mm -hmm. for those first nine months. But then once the conviction happened, it happened the same day that he got our divorce papers. And that was it. Then I cut off all communication. Because if you listen to the last episode where I speak with him on the phone— he just continues to to spin the truth. And I don't think really understands what he did to these people, especially the student. I don't think he understands the gravity of his issues. Mm-mm. No, and that's a tremendous lack of empathy, right? That's the core of empathy, that I've acted in a way that may have harmed someone. So I am— I. I can see that I harmed someone. This wasn't okay, and be aware of that. In those months, because you started looking at these emails and seeing what he had done pretty early in the game, did you ask him, did you make inquiries of what is this, what happened, who are all these people? Did you ask him, what kind of response did you get back? I would ask him, you told this person and this person that you loved them. And his response was always, oh, I don't remember saying that. Or, oh, I didn't really love them. It it was just this deep denial. Mm -hmm. I would say that I knew the extent. I knew how much he communicated with these people, how long these relationships, some of them were. And he just played it off like it it really wasn't anything. So this wasn't all just emails and messages. These were real relationships. Yes, real relationships with many people. Some, like I said, three at a time. And they would be a year or two years long. This is where I think... I mean, in a way, I don't know. I don't want this to even sound like grudging admiration. I think I'm more puzzled than anything. Is how was he able to organize his time like that? The time management, right? The time management. I can't even keep a gallon of milk in the house, and no. this guy is like juggling all this and presenting as the devoted husband, the devoted teacher, the devoted fa- you know extended family member. All of that. What is what's chilling to me is that the compartmentalization that's required to do that. There's a reason you, Jen, and Andrea, and I can't do this is because we couldn't compartmentalize. Empathy means you can't compartmentalize. Empathy is why you actually can't lie very well, that the water breaches over. And so if you were doing something like this, people would detect a change in you. And the idea that nobody was seeing that change is not a deficit in the people around him. It is a statement on his capacity for compartmentalization. Totally. Did you think in those early months, Jen, that he knew he was doing something wrong? One thing that's interesting, he said to me, I figured if you didn't know, then it wouldn't hurt you. Mm. Mm-hmm. So mm. I think it was that he compartmentalized everything and he thought, well, if I keep this part really separate from Jennifer, 
then I'm not hurting her. Right, which is almost very paternalistic when we think about it. It's being the puppet master. I can pull all the strings. I decide who gets to know what. And if I decide her not knowing means that she's not heard, then it's all okay. Those are the complex rationalizations that take place, you know. And we see this across a lot of patterns, not just in a sort of a narcissistic personality, but also even in an addiction. If nobody sees me get high or I never get high on the day of my kids' soccer games, somehow there's some grand eraser in the sky that makes it okay. These are the defenses that keep these kinds of behaviors in place. So you learn all of this. He gets convicted. And how long after the conviction did you sit with Andrea and say, I think I want to share this story with the world? I think it was probably about eight months. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We got in contact. And again, I don't know what it was, but just something pushed me to say, I want to tell this story. Mm -hmm. There's so many insane components of it that, I didn't want to sweep it under the rug. I wanted people to know that teacher of the year or that Eagle Scout can be Mm -hmm. that manipulator and that person that can just destroy lives. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that narcissistic people are so emboldened and enabled by the world is that we often fall for the window dressing or maybe we're just perceptually lazy. Whether it's being the proverbial Eagle Scout or Teacher of the Year or Employee of the Year or person who is revered in the community, that can buy a person a lot of social collateral and power and an unwillingness or at least a block by other people to seeing what the person's really about. People with antagonistic, manipulative, and dishonest interpersonal styles are like the wolf in sheep's clothing. We have to be willing to reshape our schemas of these people when their behavior is at odds with their shiny public persona. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Jen and Andrea. There are not always red flags in narcissistic relationships. This is really important to remember because many survivors blame themselves for missing the signs and subsequently feeling foolish. Jen, her family, their friends, nobody they had contact with noticed any red flags. So when it all came out, she was shocked and startled, but didn't track it back to something she missed. It's easy to fall into believing that there are always red flags. Sometimes there aren't, or they are so subtle that we miss them. For a person with an antagonistic or a narcissistic personality, their behavior is worse when they are not getting enough validation. So when things in a narcissistic person's life are going well, they feel safe, they feel admired, they feel in control, is often when people will say that they feel like their relationship with them is going great. This also means that when that validation fades or the structures of deceit and manipulation come crashing down, an entirely new person can emerge. This can confuse survivors to no end who don't understand where the shift comes from and can feel grief and shame at recognizing that the only reason the relationship was working was because the narcissistic person may have been getting their needs met in other places.
A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Dervasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara De La Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahue and Calvin Bailiff. Thank you.